You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Beyond 50 radio program. I'm Daniel Davis. On the program today, we're going to be solving a particular riddle, especially from a new approach from a licensed psychologist and certified rehabilitation counselor. We're gonna be talking about ADHD, and it's when the brain cannot fully hold or interpret the information coming in, and maybe the child can't pay attention, or how about a lot of adults as well who have lived with a lifetime of ADHD, such as myself, or retain information enough to actually learn. Well, our guest today developed a breakthrough solution using neurofeedback, a specific specially developed a video game to build new neural pathways that can improve a child's specific areas of auditory or visual processing. So the question is, what is the root cause or the nature of ADHD? Has it been maybe misdiagnosed as what's going on up there in the brain in a different way for many, many years that have had a lot of children and even adults on high-powered psychotropics such as Ritalin? We're going to find out as we solve the ADH riddle, which is the name of the book, The Real Cause and Lasting Solutions to Your Child's Struggle to Learn. And our guest joining us on the program today is Dr. Connie McReynolds. Dr. McReynolds, thank you for joining us here on the program today. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, first of all, how did you become interested and then kind of consumed and enthralled with pursuing ways to help people with ADHD and solving this particular riddle? Well, it actually started many, many years ago. My mother was a second grade teacher and she taught second grade in the same classroom for 32 years. And so I kind of joked that I grew up in second grade and watched her back in the day um, deal with children who were struggling to learn. And one little boy couldn't learn how to read. And she took a particular interest in him over the summer, drove him to a local university, and they diagnosed him with something back in that day that wasn't very well known yet called dyslexia. And I think that just kind of stuck in my mind. My aunt was the dean of a college of education. I've taught for 25 years. And part of my educational background is in rehabilitation counseling and rehabilitation psychology. Those fields actually take a particular interest in understanding the causal factors and looking for alternative solutions to kind of um, the regular um, problems that exist for people. So I think that really sparked my interest. And then as my career developed and evolved. I ended up at a university in Southern California where I had the opportunity to create an institute, an assessment center and an institute. And through that process learned of this process called neurofeedback and began looking at that about 15 years ago. And in that process, children and adults were coming in. I was working with children. I was working with veterans with PTSD. And in that first year, what I started discovering is that a lot of these traditional interventions, such as medications, ones that you've mentioned, but even behavioral interventions, were falling short for at least the children whose parents were bringing them into my clinics. So that started me down the journey of really looking at what's going on. Why why are these traditional processes not working? And why are they maybe not working? We have an assessment that we run that takes about 20 minutes. And it was through that process that I really started uncovering what I came to understand is maybe the hidden reason that some of these interventions aren't working well. You know, it's pretty fascinating to think, uh, as I grew up back in the 1970s, I was diagnosed with uh, hyperactive attention deficit disorder and um you know now you look at this day and age and i remember that was 
sort of a process. He actually went to a psychologist uh, and it took time, but we've gotten to a day and age, especially in schools where allegedly teachers are becoming the new diagnosis of this situation here because they want to be able to get kids to settle down, you know, and of course they want to teach lessons. But how much do you think this is actually misunderstood, especially by a teaching public? Because it gets pretty dangerous when a teacher of all things thinks that they have the ability to create a diagnosis and steer their uh, the parents of the children into a direction where they're using powerful drugs that basically turn them into zombies. What are your thoughts about all that? Well, coming from a teaching field and a long line of teachers, uh, certainly watching my mother who had, you know, 20-some youngsters in her classroom, I understand the challenge of the teachers and, you know, their, the pressures that are on teachers these days. They don't have the resources. They don't have... Um, a lot of what they need anymore to be able to answer these questions or even deal with these children. And there are more of these children in today's world than there were when my mom taught, you know, 30-some years ago. I think part of the problem is even within the medical profession, I don't know how effective the diagnoses really are. They're pretty quick for a lot of children. Um, I've had teenagers tell me and parents say, you know, we went to the doctor. We were in the office for less than 10 minutes. The physician asked a few questions, and then we walked out with a prescription for some type of medication. And with the current diagnostic criteria in today's world, uh, when a person reads that, a vast majority of people could probably qualify for ADHD under that catchment area. And so it seems to me that this label of ADHD has really become too broad of a net. It's uh, kind of putting too many people in the pool, so to speak. And then the people who do end up in this pool, the resources for them seem to, seem to be pretty limited to these traditional interventions of medications or behavioral interventions. And when those don't work, parents and teachers and children are kind of left asking, now what? And that's where I really started delving into this to try and figure out what is really going on here. Now, it's pretty fascinating. As you went on your own journey, what did you discover? And did you feel that perhaps over the many years we've been going in an off direction, like not looking at this more accurately, like it was more of a mental disorder versus maybe more of a physiological one? Well, it's been such a curious process over the last you know, decade and a half in looking at this. And, and what started happening for me in my practice is we were using this assessment that had been developed that matches up with our um, neurofeedback intervention. And as I worked with this the first five years, I really started seeing a pretty consistent message which is it didn't much matter what diagnosis a child came in with. And so they could come in diagnosed with a developmental display, learning disorders, cognitive impairment, and, and some of my least favorite, intermittent explosive disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, uh, obsessive compulsive <laughs> disorder, Tourette's syndrome, and even autism. And the list just went on and on and on. That's just a few of the diagnoses that these children would walk in the door with. Many of them were on medications, some on multiple types of medications, and nothing was working. So as I started looking at this and studying this and really researching the literature, looking at what's out there, I realized that really no one was talking about what we were seeing in the data, which were these auditory and visual processing problems. And this assessment breaks these out across 37 areas of auditory and visual processing. We also looked at some memory, conceptualization, and sequencing. And by and large, the majority of the children and adults who come in, regardless of what the diagnostic label is when they walk in the door, have auditory and visual processing problems. So when we find that, it's a lot like I kind of equate it to going to a gym if you want to strengthen your body. You'll probably meet with the training consultants and have an assessment 
to determine what machines would be the best for you to strengthen whatever your goals are for strengthening. That's what our assessment does. It helps me identify those areas that are working well and then areas that just simply are not strong enough to carry these messages from the environment, whether they are auditory or visual messages. Because if a child cannot remember what has been said to him or her, it's very difficult for the child to follow through. And so part of what happens is that in our society, we're pretty geared toward trying to just get rid of symptoms instead of really understanding the underlying cause for the symptoms, which in this case typically are behaviors, unwanted behaviors. And when we started peeling all this back and I started looking at this, I discovered that the behaviors oftentimes were a type of language that this child was using to try and say, I'm struggling, I'm having trouble, I don't know what to do. And many times, if not most of the times, that is either overlooked or not understood at all. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go ahead and talk about, uh, like from my perspective, uh, the things that I've struggled with over the years were, uh, yeah, I could easily not pay attention. For instance, I could be reading a book. All of a sudden, I'm caught up in another thought as I'm reading. And after a page and a half, two pages go by, I realize, well, I just read something and I need to go back, you know, and read that again. Or there's this other thing where I might, say, be in a restaurant talking with someone, but I can pay attention to three or four other conversations going on around me at the same time that I'm involved in the one in front of me. Or, Mm -hmm. for instance, one of the biggest, uh, I guess, complaints that I've had from former employers over the years was you don't seem to follow through and take things to the end that you tend to start things, but you don't typically finish them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so give us an idea what, excuse me, what some of, if you want to call them struggles or challenges, people, especially children with ADHD actually endure or deal with. Very much what you were just describing. And so the first part that you were describing is really what we would find likely some challenges on one of the measures that identifies the tendency of the brain to drift off. So there's drifting off for visual, there's drifting off for auditory, and then not being able to kind of get to the end of a task is typically a stamina weakness for either auditory or visual. And this is what children live with in school all day long who have these auditory and visual processing challenges. They're in trouble at school. They're in trouble at home. They feel badly about themselves. We start getting a lot of negative verbal self-verbalizations. And most of the time, even adults will do this. I'm not saying that you did, but some adults will or will have done this. They'll think that it's an intelligence problem, and then they have to fight that a misperception about themselves because this is not about intelligence. This is simply about processing and some of the pathways in the brain just aren't as strong as they need to be. The neurofeedback that we do, the EEG biofeedback, tackles that through repetition and strengthening. And so the beauty of that is we can target the specific areas that need to be strengthened And by using the tried and true process of operant conditioning, which is just a reward and feedback for consistency and repetition, the brain learns. And once the brain has strengthened in these areas, and we measure this through our assessment, we measure this through transfer into living uh, daily life, uh, you know, the child or the person doing better in their world. So we measure that as we go along, and the beauty of it is that once these areas of the brain are strengthened, they tend to hold. A person doesn't need to keep coming back for neurofeedback, and that's Mm -hmm. what I've seen over the last 15 years, and that's why I wrote the book. It's because I really want people to understand there's a different way to look at this. It's kind of outside-the-box thinking, but I think we might need to be there because these tried-and-true so-called interventions, first of all, the medications, they may dial down the symptoms, which are the behaviors that parents or teachers don't want to see, but then you take the child off the medication and it pops right back up. And there's a lot of research out there that suggests that children who've been on medication even for years 
once they're off the medication, they are no better off in the long run than children with the same symptoms who were not on medication. So it isn't really getting at the underlying causal factor of why the child is behaving in a certain way. And that's really why I wanted to change up the narrative. I want to change how we think about that. I want to change how we react to it as well. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to um, uh, the brain waves, what do they actually have to do with ADHD? I know there are certain brain waves and, and attention spans. You got theta, you got gamma, that sort of thing. Let's talk about that so people can get a better detail that this is just something that seems to be not only correctable uh, without using drugs, but also something that's more permanently aligned where people begin to feel like, wow, what a difference this actually makes. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of going to that, I've got some insights that I can give, you know, again, uh, mm -hmm. to what I learned. And I've actually had the bioneurofeedback uh, okay. where we... <laughs> Fortunately, had the sponsor uh, that came on and she says, you know, I don't mind you just coming on, spending the money and doing the commercial, but you know what? And it was almost like God gave me a gift. She says, I'd like you to come in and I'd like you to experience this. And I had actually heard about neurofeedback back in the early 90s. I was like, it, to me, a light went on. This makes sense. I mean, think about it. The process of seemingly playing a video game, but instead of holding a remote control in your hands, you're actually playing it with your mind. But let's first of all, talk about the brainwave aspect of it, how that has to do with ADHD. And then we can go into neurofeedback, what it is, how it works and what the outcomes are. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> it really is. And it's great to be able to share this information. And so just, you know, kind of a thumbnail uh, approach to this, because you know, I want to be communicative but not overpower people. And um, we really kind of are looking at five different kinds of brain waves, and I'll just run through those briefly. Uh, gamma brain waves are our fastest brain waves, and they typically really are associated with learning and complex problem solving, um, peak performance, and expanded consciousness even. And so, you know, these are, if we think about what they do and then we think about weaknesses, in those areas or they're just not producing enough, the brain isn't producing enough of it, the opposite would be what the description is. <clears throat> Pardon me. For beta brain waves, these are fast and they typically are associated with alertness, concentration, and really cognition. <clears throat> Excessive brain beta waves have been associated with ADHD and that can also lead to some obsessive compulsive disorder, we can see some sleep disorders, learning disorders, anxiety and depression with that. Alpha waves are uh, associated typically with some relaxation or visualization and creativity. If we have too much of that, we might have inattentiveness. We could be distractible. We could even have some experiences with depression again and anxiety. And theta waves are slower brains associated typically with perhaps meditation or intuition and even memory. Too much of that has been linked to confusion. We could have slower reaction times. We could have difficulties with impulse control. We could be someone who kind of daydreams. Um, and then the delta are the slowest. And they're associated with sleep stages, but also can be a factor in what we call detached awareness, kind of that drifting off a little bit. Uh, so when we think about what's happening there, uh, the beauty of the neurofeedback is we're able to measure those brain waves. And the nice thing about neurofeedback, as you know, is that nothing's coming back into the brain. This is we're measuring, it's fed into the computer, and then you're interacting with computer programs. Uh, so uh, does that kind of help with the brain waves and kind of get us where we need Absolutely. to be? It okay. does, because I think people begin to piece together that this is a, a neurological, I don't really want to call it a disorder because I think there's also a lot of gift in it as well, but the fact that you can actually break it down into pieces and say, here's what we know. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, we have that ability 
through EEGs and EKGs and things like that to weigh and measure these things. And to give you an idea, here was an interesting uh, scene. I want to say that it was from House. I can't remember, you know, which is the show where the doctor diagnoses these rare things. And anyway, there was a point that they had this young girl in a CAT scan and they were asking her questions and one of the doctors says, well, now that's interesting. What they pointed to was the fact that um, she went into her hypothalamus, I think it is, and maybe I'll get these areas of the brain wrong. But as she answered the question, they noticed the brain activity was in an area of the brain that had to do with fantasy and imagination. So in other words, it was mm-hmm. like she answered the question, but she was making it up. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, understand. <laughs> how the brain works or how the waves work. It gets easier to approach this than from the, gee whiz, your kid just can't settle down, so throw some Ritalin down their throat. And as my mother said back in the 70s, and I was on half of a pill, she says, I just abandoned the whole thing altogether because I didn't want a zombie for a child. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think we in today's world, we have a responsibility to start looking deeper at this. Maybe in the past, 40 years ago or 50 years ago, we didn't know what we know now. We've learned so much about the brain. And in fact, 90% of what we know about the brain and its functioning we've acquired over the last 10 to 15 years. So I think it's time that we really rethink how we approach some of these conditions. And, you know, I hear people now bantering around this term neurodivergent and neurodevelopmental disorder and and Parents come in with these labels with the children and they're just they're just kind of petrified about this because they don't know really what that means. Is it really serious? Is my child, you know, have some kind of brain damage of some sort? And, you know, we do this assessment and we find, well, no, but they do have this. They have right. difficulty remembering information because their auditory processing is incredibly weak. Look at this. This child scored 37 out of 100 here uh, and being able to retain auditory information. So it's no wonder your son or your daughter, you know, are kind of drifting off because they can't get back on task when they lose track of where, where they are and what's going on. Stamina, processing speed is another one we measure. So processing speed, really, um, the light bulb came on in so many ways with that one. When I really started looking at this processing speed problem that some of these children had, and processing speed, uh, if that isn't where it needs to be, kind of around the 100 on our assessment, if that's slow, if processing speed is slow, this child most likely, maybe not always, but most likely has already been labeled as, quote, slow, and that gets interpreted, as you may, you know, hypothesize here, as a child being developmentally delayed or having a cognitive delay or, in other words, getting translated into a lower IQ. And it couldn't be further from the truth with most of the children that I've dealt with because once we tackle that processing speed and get that up to par, that all of those observed behaviors and slowness of response time go away. Because it wasn't cognitive, it wasn't developmental, it wasn't this other neurodivergent thing um, in my world, at least as I think of it. It was a processing problem that as we strengthened those neuronal pathways, that part of the brain became stronger and actually then started what I kind of call coming online. Uh, We rewired or strengthened the wiring there so that this child could then perform and do what they truly are capable of doing. But it's like having a barrier standing in front of you. If you can't get past that barrier, you can't demonstrate what you're truly all about. And if we think about processing speed and the number of children who may actually have that, who've been misidentified with cognitive delays, <coughs> for me, and perhaps have been channeled into programs that they've ended up stuck in. And they shouldn't be there. Because if we can tackle this, they don't need to be in some of these types of educational programs that maybe are not supporting them in the way that they could be supported and not challenging them in the way that they actually could be challenged and learn in school. Right. 
you know, and I felt, and again, I also like to talk about the benefits and then when you, uh, of actually having ADHD, because there are some amazing ones now. I remember back, and I think it was the early mid nineties, I was starting to read about this a lot more, trying to understand it. And uh, there was a particular uh, person out of the East Coast. I think he's got a radio show now, but he talks about ADD. And he says there's the hunter's mind and there's the farmer's mind and broke it down into the categories where when you think of ADD, ADHD, that's more of the hunter. You know, you pick up these keen sort of signals from all over the place. Like I said, here I was in a restaurant having a conversation, but paying attention to three or four conversations at the same time uh, and staying with it. And the fact is when you're out hunting, you've got to gather in all the information, you know, the feel of the air, the tracking and all that. And then you have the farmer and they're, you know, dealt with the mundane task of managing crops and feeding cattle and doing things like that on routine, something that somebody with ADHD tends to get bored with. What would you think about that as a description, the farmer and the hunter's mind? Well, I do think it's intriguing uh, from the standpoint that, yes, we want to focus on the assets. None of us are wired exactly the same, and we wouldn't want everyone to be wired exactly the same. There's too much that needs to be done on our planet, and we need everyone in the pool doing the things that they can do best. So, you know, I think it's a fascinating idea. Uh, And I guess kind of where my brain goes with that and how, you know, what could we do to strengthen each one of those brains if there are areas of distractibility where a person just gets lost in thought and they can't complete tasks. You know, it's kind of like... Yes, it's good to be able to track on a lot of things. You may be able to hang on to all of that. That wouldn't necessarily change. But if there are these other areas where, um, you know, perhaps a person can't hold on to a job because they can't remember what their boss asked them to do. And I had a gentleman in his 50s who showed up in my office who was struggling with that. Uh, He couldn't understand why he couldn't hold a job. And then we ran this Mm -hmm. assessment and, and it was very clear. It's like, well, he didn't have effective auditory memory. So he couldn't remember what his boss was saying and he just, he started weeping because he just was so relieved to finally have an answer as to why he was struggling so much. So the benefits of a person's fantastic brain don't go away with this, but the limitations that are perhaps holding children or people back, that can be remedied. And so this really is is kind of how I talk about it, is tuning up the brain for optimal living, for optimal life. Let's figure out how to give this person every advantage that they could have in life, particularly children, because when children aren't able to follow along or keep up in school, they're very aware that they are, quote, different from their peers. And there's a lot of bullying that goes on with these children. There's a lot of low self-esteem. They start telling themselves terrible things that they're not smart. They'll even walk in and parents will say he's, he's saying that he's stupid. And he can't do the things. And we need to stop all of that. And the medication, you know, it's good for some folks, but for others, it hasn't tackled what I've seen uh, as a problem. So I think let's give everyone the best advantage and use the skill sets that are really good. And yes, people's brains are wired completely differently, and thank heavens they are, because we don't want a whole planet of everyone who just does the same thing. That wouldn't be very good. No. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, to point out on that about feeling different now, my experience was this, you know, because I was disruptive, and not in a bad way, you know, I was disruptive in class. Uh, I can remember always having that desk. I was the student that was all by myself while you had all the other desks grouped together. And then I had mm-hmm. to kind of earn my way back into the group through good behavior. Yeah. Now, people would say, well, I get that, but you don't understand. And I want to share this because this is important because where we're going to go next with, hey, there is a hell of a lot of hope out there, believe me, about what we're about to talk about. But Here's the long-term repercussions of a situation that I grew up in in school of being that one that was carved off to the side. 
is that you begin experiencing a lifetime of wondering why you're that person that always seems to be standing on the outside looking in. And do you know that took me until I was in my 40s before I understood why I kept thinking that I was the lone wolf. That was part of the other part is I was in a different school every year from preschool all the way till the sixth grade. But again, I adapted. I was that kid that was the new kid in class, for instance. Oh, here's Daniel. And pretty soon they're sitting back. And then three weeks later, everybody's wondering, well, where did the new kid go? I was a very alpha male kind of a person, a hunter, if you will. But that's the long-term repercussions of that kind of wiring that the behavior puts you in to think, you know, how come I don't feel that I'm invited to things, even though people like me? Or, you know, how come I feel like I'm in the outside looking in? And you can see how that would have repercussions even in the workplace. You just don't feel like you're part of the group, even though you want to contribute. There's a ton of frustration, especially as you said earlier, even minor could even potentially be major depression. Yes. Yes, it's really important that we understand what these um, social environmental um, challenges really, you know, bloom into, if you will, because children do not have the language to say that. You know, it took you a while to be able to put those pieces together. And if we can put the pieces together, if there's something I can do to help parents put these pieces together and teachers put it together in a way to really understand and build compassion. There are a lot of teachers who are beautifully compassionate. There are others who are intolerant. And I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of parents and even children, you know, who've come into my clinics. And in one case, a mother shared the story that her son's teacher was having him sit on a one-legged stool to improve his attention. These things don't well, how, help. Yeah. <laughs> What's next? A bicycle across a high tension wire? I mean, where do we draw the line there? <laughs> exactly. It, it's, but it, it also speaks to sometimes what I think is almost a desperation of teachers and not having resources, not knowing what to do. And I'm going to wax just a little bit here on a pilot project that I ran a few years back before COVID, where I uh, was able to um, integrate a neurofeedback program into an elementary school, because I really wanted to study, could we make a difference in a school setting with the children being able to use this as a pull-out service, as they were many of the other services? And so we went in. We had the approval of the school board, the administration, the school psychologist. In fact, it's in my book. It's a chapter in the book. The school psychologist did her dissertation on this. There's a chapter she co-authored about the process of being able to get this into a school. And one of the most profound pieces that I recall of this is, yes, we were able to change the children's world, but we changed the teacher's world. And I'll say they were a little bit resistant at the front end. They were resistant about having a child being pulled out of their classes because they felt like the child was missing out. But then when the child started being able to pay attention better, they would come and say, can you do another session with this child this week? <laughs> so it was working. And there, were, uh, there was a huge reduction in the number of behavioral interventions for these particular children Then the next year. Because at the start of the next year, they didn't have the flare-ups that they had had before with these particular children because we had really tackled the root cause. And I'll always remember the day a teacher sat in on the intake with the parent and the child. And, you know, as, as good as any teacher is, they're still human. And there's a tendency in this world, whether it's teachers or parents or bystanders or whomever, to blame the child for the bad behavior, that they're, there's something wrong with that child, they're just not paying attention. Well, if a child can't pay attention, they can't pay attention, and there's nothing wrong with that child. It's just we need to figure out how to help this child and strengthen these particular pathways in their brain. And when this teacher sat in and I went over the assessment results, I could see the shift on this teacher's face. And he started, his body started relaxing, his face started relaxing, and suddenly he seemed like a different person with this child. 
And when I provided him with some tools for the classroom while this child was going through the neurofeedback program, he implemented those, as the other teachers did. And those tips are in the book. Uh, and I, I just want people to know that if we can figure out kind of where a child falls as a checklist in the book as well, to help people understand, okay, am I looking at auditory processing, am I looking at visual, or am I looking at some of both for this particular child? And when we know what we're actually seeing and decoding that, then we can apply the appropriate intervention. But if we don't know what we're dealing with, it's pretty hard to know which intervention to work, (laughs) to use. And it's why a lot of these behavioral interventions just fall flat. If you have a child who has an auditory processing problem, meaning that this child can't remember or is drifting off while you're talking to the child asking them to do this and the child can't remember, then everyone assumes that the behavioral intervention either isn't working or the child isn't trying hard enough or there's inconsistency in the application of it either at home or at school. And it could be none of the above. It could be the child simply can't remember. And if we tackle that, then maybe you don't even need a behavioral intervention anyway. Right, right. Uh, You know, it's a fascinating world, and I love how technology has actually stepped up its game. And we're we're looking at, you know, 20-plus years that this neurofeedback we're about to talk about has been available. Again, like I said, I remember reading about it back in the early 90s, but I never pursued it for me again the light went on. I was like, this just makes sense, you know, for whatever reason. It was almost intuitive. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing people with ADHD have an incredible heightened sense of is intuition and energetic feeling, you know, like they can actually perceive uh, through an interesting way. It's like a flash goes on inside of them about people's feelings and even almost to the level of uh, heightened awareness of psychic ability. Uh, people say, oh, that's a little crazy, but, you know, that's another story altogether. Uh, but let's go ahead and talk about neurofeedback, <clears throat> how it was developed, and how it's applied. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so actually, um, <laughs> it's fascinating because neurofeedback was developed in the 1970s at UCLA by Dr. Barry Sturman. So we have a lot of data, a lot of literature right. about this. And it has certainly evolved since then. It's much more sophisticated than it was then. It's much more readily available because really until kind of the, and I will say there are some positive aspects about the gaming industry, and this is one of them, which is the high-speed computers that were developed to support the gaming industry are why we can develop and deliver now neurofeedback through the use of PCs. Prior to that, the computers weren't strong enough to really be able to do it outside of some university laboratory or expensive medical center that could afford that. Now, you know, clinics like mine, I have, you know, six stations set up across three different clinics, and we can do remote neurofeedback anywhere you're setting. We can do this now. Really? Yep, wow. We I, can. I was going to get into that later on. I was kind of hoping so. But anyway, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) We'll wax to that towards the end. (laughs) So neurofeedback, you've probably heard some of these terms. It's also known as EEG biofeedback. And just, you know, for clarity, EEG means electroencephalogram technology, which is why we call it EEG. And so this sensing unit, which is similar to the sensing unit that we used to know about with biofeedback, where they maybe put a little clip on the finger to measure the pulse rate, or maybe we're looking at respiration, that data, biological data, was fed into a computer, and then you could see where your heart rate and your respiration rate were, and then you could practice relaxation techniques, and you could see an impact and a, a result in how you had more control over your biology. Prior to that, we didn't think we had any control over our biology. With biofeedback, we learned we have a lot of control. With EEG biofeedback, we're now learning we have a lot of ways we can enhance the functioning of the brain because these are small little sensors that are placed on the scalp and they measure and display 
nearly instantaneous information, which is what we call the feedback, about the person's brainwaves. And so I want to reiterate, there's nothing with our system, there are different systems out there, but with our systems, it's true neurofeedback because it is not, it is not doing anything to the brain. The person is learning through the feedback loop of visual and auditory information how to strengthen their brain waves. And so by measuring those brain waves, the person really learns how to retrain their brain. Again, back to the exercise um, analogy. You strengthen your brain muscles by working them in a certain way and through a repetitive nature, then those brain processes, neuronal pathways and such can be affected. And once the brain learns those new ways of being, if you will, it tends to hold once we get it repeated enough. So we're literally able to retrain or strengthen these brainwave patterns. It's kind of the old operant conditioning, which means that learning really happens when we're using a reinforcement and a repetition process to give us the desired changes that we're looking for. Right. We kind of think of it as a shortcut to boosting brain functions. Right. And as we've talked about many times on this show, believe me, we've had a lot of great interviews with neuroscientists over the many years. And uh, the idea that the brain can actually reorganize itself, that it's plasticity and the ability to reroute neurons and, and nerves and all that, that it can just relearn. And it's really mm -hmm. uh, fascinating to know that what you're talking about here. For the listeners out there, this is more than hope. This is going to feel like a miracle to you, I promise you, because I, again, I experienced it. And we produced a 10-minute video that's on YouTube from the lady that I actually went to, and she decided to get out of the business. And I'm like, I keep trying to get a hold of her. Do you know how many views your video has? I mean, people are actually asking, where can I get this? So mm -hmm. they want to know. And 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 I'll say from my experience, uh, that this, believe me, it's work, it's long-lasting, and the fact that there are no negative side effects, it's almost all positive. But it takes time for you to realize how it's working. So to give you an idea, one of the biggest, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot, uh, and, and certainly I've heard a lot uh, with ADHD, is we tend to procrastinate and put things off because we're <laughs> so consumed in the immediate gratification of what's in front of us. So to give you an idea what that means in my world, for instance, I know I've got to go in and I have to fold the laundry after it's done drying. So I'll put that off because I'm watching a show and I'd rather sit there and watch TV. Hence the alpha waves that are coming at us. And all of us have that mental addiction when it comes to television because of how it's set up to be an alpha wave situation. You know, I hypnotize, if you will. But yeah. I'll sit there and I'll go, okay, well, why don't I just get up and go do it? Now, this is pre- uh, neurofeedback. Um, so I'd go in there, but I'd feel like as I'm folding the clothes, I'm rushing through them. My foot's out the door. I can't wait to get back to what I was doing. So now you're doing sloppy work on top of it. You know, you're not following through you're not there in that moment. Now, here's what happened post neurofeedback is it was subtle, but I began to notice it. And that was the cool part. Like I knew there was something different because now it was like I was present. My foot wasn't out the door. I was like, no, let's participate in just getting this done and following through. And I began to take a lot of pleasure in, let's say, just folding clothes. I was there doing it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then I was following through to the end, and I was doing it, you know, and improving. You know, the clothes were being folded better. I know this is a simple analogy, but it's a great one, I think, to put out there. And it was, and you began retaining just how good being in the present moment feels. Yeah. Now think about all those hunting skills that we ADHD people have if you're in the <laughs> present moment. See, so yeah. you say you retain all the stuff that was negative, but now it turns into positives because you know how to use it more effectively. Is that an accurate way to describe that? Oh my gosh, yes. It's perfect, Daniel. That's a perfect description because we're just tuning things up and getting them aligned so that people can get through their day more easily and accomplish the goals. Because if I'm completely distracted, I can have a lot of great ideas, but maybe I don't follow through on them. I can be very creative, <laughs> yeah. but, it, you know, but if all my creativity does is just sit within me 
because they can't get organized enough to go create something, then, you know, what's really going on here? Am I really doing what I'm here to do? So this gives people a fighting chance. It gives them hope that there's an answer that's beyond just telling a, a child to, you know, sit still in their chair when they can't, or an adult struggling in ways that are less, you know, effective in their lives. It just doesn't have to be this way anymore. And this whole concept, I'm glad you mentioned it, of neuroplasticity. So that was actually <laughs> that was actually first written about in 1949 by Dr. Wow. Donald Heave, who was a Canadian psychologist. And it has taken us all this time to be able to fully embrace what that really is and find these viable solutions to these otherwise perplexing riddles or puzzles of brain processing. And neuroplasticity simply means our brain is, the neuro is the brain, the plasticity is change. Our brain is constantly changing day in and day out. And we can harness that ability to change and point it in the right direction to be able to strengthen these areas where a person might be struggling whether it's an adult or a child. I've worked with children as young as three. I actually have this now in a retirement center. So some of my clients are in their 80s and 90s, and they want yeah. to reverse the problems of cognitive decline. So there's a whole other thing we can wax into at some point to talk about that. But it's, it, there's just such a broad-based application of this that it, it's just incredible. You might even say you're at the 1% <laughs> of the possibility. <laughs> mm -hmm. now, think about how much, for instance, of the uh, automatic uh, autoimmune system functions the brain actually takes care of. And, and this brings up a really fascinating point, too. When you think about the world of self-help and the billions of dollars that people spend each year to get a book that tells them how they can get from point A to point B, or you go to the seminars for personal improvement, so you can get out there and, and live these dreams and achieve these goals. But yet so many people, I mean, it's a huge attrition rate of people that go in trying to be better people. So we're told we need to be. They spend billions mm -hmm. of dollars, but their lives either are the same or they're not that much. They could even be worse. And, and yeah. understanding these things work, especially in the brain. Now, here was an interesting one. I remember... I was interviewing a psychologist one time, and in her book, she broke down what each portion of the brain's responsibilities were. And again, a light went on for me, and I said, now I think I understand why self-help doesn't work for a lot of people, because what she explained in the book is, think about all the energy the brain uses and all the automatic functions, such as breathing mm -hmm. and and digestion, all of it. I mean, it's an incredible amount of energy that it uses. So here's why people, they say you try to develop a new habit and take at least 30 days. We've all heard this from about a lot of different people, but nobody really says why. But she was the first one that did explain this to me anyway. And that is mm -hmm. because all the energy, the brain needs to become efficient at what it does. Okay, so that it can do this. So now imagine you integrate a new habit. Perhaps you want to get up and go for a 30-minute walk every day. So to do that, the brain says, oh, now you're giving me something else to do. Don't you think I got enough on my plate? I mean, imagine the brain having that conversation. But in fact, it actually does. Because yes, think about is. somebody not gotten up, at, you know, for 30 minutes to go for a walk every morning. You're laying in bed. Maybe it's a little colder that morning and you're saying to yourself, you know, why don't we go ahead and get a little more sleep? It's warm. It's cozy. You know, it's day three of this walk thing. But why don't I make up my walking 60 minutes tomorrow? How many of us have <laughs> actually had those conversations and change? Probably a lot of us. And it's mm -hmm. all because your brain's, I don't want any more to do right now. So it'll talk you out of it. Or you will. Does that make sense? It does because about, and there's a little statistic that has been discovered about our brain processes and what's called the automatic pilot system in our brain is that about 95% of the choices we make each day are already made for us by our brain, which is not unlike what you were just discussing. 
and only about 5% are we actually consciously making a decision of. And we equate that to, I don't think about how to pick up a pencil when I go to write. I don't think about how I stand up. I don't think about how I walk across the room or any of the you know, myriad activities I do throughout the day. That's on autopilot. And the case in point is, you know, if you want to get familiar with autopilot, think about when you've been driving down a freeway and you suddenly realize you don't know where your exit is and perhaps it was 10 miles back because you just missed it because your brain was somewhere else. That's autopilot in action. <laughs> and so what we want to do with the neurofeedback is really strengthen these conscious processes, which we can do. And, you know, there's a lot about the meditation and mindfulness and such, which is all great. But if a person's highly distractible, they'll tell you it's very hard for them to do meditation or really be mindful. And that's another place where we can come in and really help people develop that because they could have a hyper type of hyperactivity that we uncover that's in the brain that I kind of describe as like a little bit of a fireworks display going off. And if someone has that, they've never not had it. So they don't know that it's there and it's a factor in their life interfering with the decisions that they perhaps want to make for themselves. Right. You know, I was going to point out, too, another thing as I started doing my particular, I think I did five straight days. I went in at the same time, and it was five straight days that we did this. <clears throat> and I want to say that it was by day two that I had called her, and I said, something weird actually just happened. And she says, yeah, what's going on? And normally when I read, I not only read, but I also hear the word <laughs> in my head, like you're mm -hmm. hearing yourself read yourself. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it slowed the process down. I said, today when I went to read, it was like the words were flying off the page. What the hell is going on? I never experienced that visually at all. And she says, because you're starting to focus. And I said, is that <laughs> what focus <laughs> great point because if you haven't had it you don't know what it is right it's, yeah. yeah you can't yeah it's it's a thing you can't know white if you don't know black and up without knowing down <laughs> yeah. fascinating stuff uh, now let's talk about as we get into this uh idea of people pursuing neurofeedback um now it supports both the auditory processing as well as the visual processing. I mean, think about that's the way we take in a lot of our information. Uh, and if they have both uh, and you work at treating for this, what are some things that parents or even us as adults, you know, for, we all grow up as kids and we're still kids, but what we could do, for instance, at home or what are some things, you know, that might be able to be put in place kind of reinforces that mine was more mindfulness. Like, you know, I'm following through a at least a little bit better, you know, not as much as I'd mm -hmm. like to, but a little bit than I did before. And now I know what that is. And it's the reward of getting that thing done and you don't procrastinate or I've decided I'm going to do this and now I'm just going to follow through and try to do that. Now you understand why A students are valuable because they just simply do the work. <laughs> I'm a C, B <laughs> sort of a or I'd wait until the last minute to get that project done, you know, the night before it was due. Yeah, and we mm -hmm. all know how that, how that works out. <laughs> anyway. Right. Right. Yeah, so, you know, part of what's in my book are some tips for teachers and tips for parents. And, you know, that follows after the chapters where you can do the checklist to see, you know, does your child file into one or the other or even both of these. And so I'll just give you a few ideas here of what we can do to support children. You know, so let's start with really some of the auditory processing problems. And some teachers kind of have an instinct for this and parents have an instinct, others don't. But if this child really is falling in the category of auditory processing, we need to reduce the background noise. And so we think about classrooms and how noisy they are. If this child's seated by a window or a noisy hallway, this is just another level of distraction for this child. And so we want to move the child away from that as much as possible. We want to really make sure the area is a quiet for any kind of classroom work or project or test taking. Uh, and then particularly checking in with the students because if information is given 
verbally to a child in a classroom and this child's having trouble processing it, we need to think about, well, can this be presented visually? Is there something that can be written down and handed to this child so that they have something to look at instead of just trying to rely solely on what they've been told? Uh, and vice versa with visual processing problems. So children with visual processing problems can look a, kind of confusing. They can be really kind of disorganized. They're the ones that are maybe bumping into things or misplacing everything that they touch. They can't find anything. They don't know where it is. The homework disappears. Backpack disappears. They lose their glasses. Uh, this is really kind of a sign of visual processing. And so, again, we reverse it. So if everything's being pre presented visually, you know, someone's writing on the board but not really auditorily explaining this, this child could have trouble getting the information from the board down on a piece of paper. They could have messy handwriting. So, you know, techniques to kind of help stabilize them in the classroom would be beneficial. Again, you know, play to the strengths. The difficulty for other children who have both of these is it's sometimes hard to figure out which way is the best, and in children who have weaknesses across the board in both auditory and visual, that becomes a lot harder uh, and a little more involved to try and find those solutions. But it's possible. We just have to have patience, understanding, and an awareness of what this child's going through. Absolutely. You know, it's fascinating to just take a look at all this and offer the uh, great possibilities, and I say that, you know, as my own testament. And that is that uh, what has been, in your experience, the success rate and what does success actually look like other than the, wow, aha, I could have never believed my life could be like this? <laughs> I think it's a great question. So I use an evidence-based practice approach where the assessments that I run at the front end on the intake are these same assessments we run after every 10 hours or 20 sessions of brain training. So we do 30-minute segments two or three times a week. And then once we hit the 10-hour mark, we come back in and we rerun those assessments. And even within our system that we use, we're able to track progress from session to session. And then I'm also listening to parents. We're listening to the child or the adult uh, talk about their daily life. And in particular with children, I'm wanting to know, you know, what are the parents seeing? Are you seeing any particular differences? And they will say, yes, you know. Uh, <laughs> I went into my child's room the other day and she'd already cleaned everything up. and can tell you that's never happened in 10 years, uh, you know, or they're in the classroom, <laughs> or they've gone from failing out to now they're succeeding. And we've even worked with some athletes. So I worked with a gymnast, and uh, she wanted to tune up for her meet and came back with five medals. So there's a lot wow. that we can do. There's a lot of measure for that. You know, we are interested, I am particularly interested, not in what they do on an assessment, but is this translating into day-to-day -day life. And so I want to know, how right. are the grades? How are the behaviors? Are the behavior interventions going down? And sometimes it's subtle, kind of like what you were talking about. I know one time early on, I had a mother who brought her son in, and we had worked with him for the kind of the appointed time, and he'd done well on his assessments, but she was saying, I don't think really anything has changed. And that weekend, they went to a family reunion, and she came back in the next week, and she looked at me, and she said, I stand corrected. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and she said, well, we went to this family reunion over the weekend, and everyone at the family reunion wanted to know what I had done to my son because he was so much more well-behaved. <laughs> uh -huh. And so then the relatives and the... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it isn't about being well-behaved. I think... When you think of ADHD and this, again, I, I use mine because I, my experience because I think it's valuable for a lot of people to go, yeah, I think he gets it. But the fact like we get excitable. So there's this mm -hmm. raw energy that comes off of us. Like, for instance, people would say, as I was growing up, man, you're a real chatterbox. And my brother even <laughs> made a smart remark about that. Well, he's afraid somebody's going to get a word in edgewise. So it makes people <laughs> nervous, you know, mm -hmm. that you're around. Now imagine it isn't that you're well behaved, but you've learned how to calm down. You're still that same person, but you've learned mm -hmm. how to just like be there, be present. And I think yeah. that sends off a different energy sig signature and everybody goes, there is something different. They don't know what it is, but it feels That's pretty right. good. Like, I kind of like mm -hmm. having you around now. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so it just makes people 
be able to shine is how I think about it. And so everyone has their gifts, but not everyone can show the world what their gifts are. If they have kind of this cloud over them or this barrier that's in front of them that they don't understand, no one really understands it. And so if we can just clear that out, then these children and adults can live an amazingly different life and it isn't because they are a better person. It's just their brain is functioning in a way that supports them instead of gives them, you know, these difficulties at times. Mm-hmm. And to give you an idea of difficulty as we begin to wrap up this show. So, again, for years I was disruptive in class. Uh, I also got into, uh, when I got into work, the world of work, into manufacturing and hand production. Now, just imagine, everyone, that I love to talk. And that was actually something I was punished for. But that's what my gift was. Mm-hmm. And then finally I got into the world of work where I got into hospitality, so it became necessary that I talk to people. But because you're taking care of, you know, let's say several tables at once, you also have to watch your timing. Radio mm-hmm. is also the thing in television it's about timing you begin building this sense of timing uh that's very important then you weigh and measure what you're saying so what i did is i took that gift that was a punishing uh stick for me growing up and i didn't let it get punched out of me through the bitter experience of punishment but i realized this is what i'm supposed to be doing and i learned how to own that special skill Perhaps neurofeedback also helped me, and this was already, I'd been in radio for a while, but that's that's the right thing to be into if you like to talk. Other things can be (laughs) other things, but that But then you begin to calm down and realize these things, and you actually communicate much, much better. So these were all your gifts the whole time, and it's like, you know, the the, what was in The Wizard of Oz, you were there the whole time. But imagine what that feels like when you get to know what that feels like. And you'll simply astonish yourself, I think. Tell people how they can find out more about your work, solving the ADHD riddle, the book that you have. And I'm mm-hmm. also interested that you can work remotely. That's that's fascinating. Not only can you do it with technology, can you work remotely, but the cost mm-hmm. starts going down. But the benefits increase. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll speak to that and then uh, direct people to my website. So uh, the beauty was I I really wasn't going to write this book and put it out until I had a way to help people regardless of where they were sitting because I didn't want another book to go out and say, well, this is what's wrong with your child and good luck with that. I wanted the book to go out and say, you know, these are the areas that your child may be struggling in and then here are some solutions and some lasting uh, ways of really helping your child. And with the remote neurofeedback, what I call it is remote neurofeedback, we actually can deliver this to um, anyone. I'm working with people across the country. I've had a client in Switzerland. Uh, and it, we do the same delivery of services as if you're within 20 or 30 miles of my clinic. And I even have people locally who take advantage of this who don't want to deal with the traffic <laughs> of getting into sure. my clinics. Uh, and so the process is exactly the same. There is a little bit different, you know, setup on that with some licensing fees and such that we have to do. But the results are the same, and I've been doing that for almost two years now for people. Wow. So we can we can do that. We have effective change. It's the exact same process. We're just zooming in, um, and I guess that's one of the benefits, perhaps, of the pandemic, like the the gaming computers, as things became more manageable through the internet and the, the ways that computers are functioning now that we have the capability of doing that. And so people can find me on my website, which is www.conniemcreynolds.com. So that's C-O-N-N-I-E-M-C-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S.com. There's a contact form on there a person can fill out, and uh, that drops it right into my email or the phone number is listed on there as well. Um, there are some videos I have up there, some podcasts that I've done over the years. You can get to that over on Spotify, and I'm happy to help. I you know, offer 
We have 15, 20 minutes free consultation on the phone if people have some questions and are just not sure if this might be the way to go. Um, so we're here to help and I know it works. It's been, I've been doing it for 15 years and I wouldn't have put the book out if it didn't. Uh, I come from academe and research-based and I published on this before I got to this point. And I recently retired from the university and now have my clinics and uh, am offering this in a broader way so that we can reach these children, help parents, help adults. And we treat anxiety, we treat trauma. I work with veterans, I've worked with children through foster care, and the same process applies. We're using neuroplasticity to help drive down the anxiety response or the trauma response in the brain and even chronic pain. So I've helped people with fibromyalgia um, as well, anxiety and depression. So, A lot of um, you know, we can do it. The book is Solving the ADHD Riddle. Our guest today, Dr. Connie McReynolds. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Uh, always an exciting conversation. And I know that you know it works, but I'm letting everybody know that I know that it works. And I want to get some <laughs> tune-ups and all that. It it's, was all, also a lot of fun, you know, to learn yeah. how your mind yeah. works. It does what it does. And very exciting stuff. It isn't a mystery that much anymore. So, Not anymore. Great stuff. Thank you so much for having me today. Take care, my friend. We Take want care. to thank you, the listeners out joining us. You can discover more at beyond50radio.com. That is the number 50. We do encourage you to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter and stay up to date with what's going on in the world of Beyond 50 as well as our upcoming shows. I'm Daniel Davis. Thank you for joining us. This is the Beyond 50 radio program. And remember, wherever you are is where you should be. Have a great day. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 